The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Douglas Cole, author of The Sales MBA, How to Influence Corporate Buyers, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Douglas Cole to talk about his book, The Sales MBA, How to Influence Corporate Buyers, published by Barlow Books. Douglas Cole is a sales leader at LinkedIn, an advisor with startup accelerators in Canada and the United States, and a part-time university lecturer at the Rotman School of Management and the Schulich Executive Education Center in Toronto. Over more than 20 years in consulting and sales, he has sold tens of millions of dollars in software as a service and advisory work. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School, a master's degree in international studies from the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, a master's degree in English literature, and a bachelor's degree in political science and English lit, all from the University of Toronto. And, interesting fact, he is a big fan of of the Hello Kitty brand. Douglas, congratulations on the sales MBA and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. That's a spirited introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, Hello Kitty, I mean, come on. You're confident enough to admit that. Tell us the story about that and and why you collect uh, Hello Kitty things. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, what happened was this was about maybe, I would say, 15 years ago or something like that. I was in Japan and I was visiting a friend of mine, and we were both practicing martial arts at the time, and he was plugged into the local community. And one night, we happened to be having dinner with one of the local legends in martial arts, a guy who you know, was recognizable walking down the street. And we were having dinner with him at this restaurant, and I couldn't help but notice that when he picked up his cell phone to call someone, he had this little Hello Kitty thing dangling off the side of his phone. And it was such a hilarious contrast between you know the this this fearsome ultra tough exterior and you know the the sort of silliness and cuteness of this little this little trinket on his phone but i remember noticing that it was that it was it was meaningful in some way it humanized him uh, and so i just remember thinking that that this brand had something that couldn't something mysteriously compelling about it and ever since then i've been i've been collecting bits of hello kitty just to remind myself to to stay human always stay human and humble the way this guy did. Wow, that's great. And are you still a uh, martial arts enthusiast? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't practice it anymore because of the injuries, but still interested in the in the sport. Try to follow it a little bit at least. Interesting. And your daughters, are they interested in the fact that you're a Hello Kitty enthusiast? They find it a little bit laughable, to be honest, but uh-huh. but um, but they still indulge it and buy me the odd trinket every, every so often. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, so I've interviewed a number of uh, authors. It seems to be a growing number uh, who have degrees from Wharton. And I've even interviewed some professors there, including uh, Jonah Berger, who you quote in your book, and Peter Fader, who actually has a new book that I'm uh, hoping to get him back on the show. And also, I noticed you attended Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Yeah. So... I'm not surprised that you have degrees in English because this book is exceptionally well-written. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And I read a lot of these, and they're all good, uh, but this one was even 
even better. <laughs> there were some some phrases you have in here, and I'll quote a few of them, but they were just, it was very, very well done. So I hope it's not your, your uh, last book. So more importantly, uh, Douglas Cole, I have interviewed uh, another author whose last name is Cole, Jesse Cole. May or may not be related to you. He's the author of Find Your Yellow Tux and Fans First, and uh, he's the owner of the Savannah Bananas baseball team, mm-hmm. and he's the guy who only wears yellow tuxedos in public. They see me rolling, they hate And I should add, Douglas Cole, that I went to Cole High School in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, there's another guy that went to Cole High School this Irish kid named Shaquille O'Neal, who uh, went on to become, uh, you know, an NBA great. And, you know, I, I taught him everything he knows about basketball. And yet, to this day, he claims, you know, he doesn't know who I am. But that's, you know, <laughs> Shaq, you, you, we both know the truth here. But, you know, that's okay. That's okay. I like to pay it forward. So I've interviewed an author named Cole. I went to Cole High School. And I've interviewed over 300 authors. But Douglas Cole, I have never interviewed an author named Douglas. So I realize this interview is just getting started, but you may be my favorite author I've ever interviewed. <laughs> it's all very it's all very meta, isn't it? Yes, yes, I'm excited. And I'll be using your name a lot, not just because it's a, an effective sales uh, tactic, but you know, rather than getting started talking about your book, let's spend the first 45 minutes or so talking about just how awesome it is to be named Douglas because I, I rarely get to talk to somebody about this. <laughs> This kind of thing. So, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I have too much uh, affection and respect for my audience. I don't want to make them suffer more than they already do, which is why I try to get the author to do most of the talking. But in, seriously, though, there, every episode, there's a first-time listener, Marketing Book Podcast. And this may be their first episode they've ever listened to, and I'm glad you're here. But they may be thinking, why is a book about sales on the Marketing Book Podcast? Good question. And the reason why is I step up on my soapbox here as the, is that the best marketers have a deep understanding of sales, what the salespeople are doing, the sales process, and more importantly, the buyers. The, the more they understand their buyers, uh, the better. And also, it just makes them, it changes their perception amongst people who don't really understand what marketers do or they misunderstand it. If you can speak the language of sales, uh, not to mention accounting, it's um, it, it really it can help you tremendously. And that's why I argue that every marketer should read at least one sales book a year. And if it's good, share it with your, your sales team. Mm-hmm. So now you work for LinkedIn. Let's I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on TV, but I wanted to say this is not a LinkedIn product. You, you work for them, but this is your work with their blessing. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, this is an official side project. It's not done under the aegis of LinkedIn. It's just a personal project for sure. Okay, great. So I know because I know the LinkedIn uh, legal department's probably listening to this to make sure you're behaving. So I want to get that out there. And let me quote from a couple sections in the beginning of the book and then uh, talk about some of the key, uh, key ideas here. Uh, so on page XII, that's 13 for the folks in Rome. I suspect there's a traffic cop standing at the crosswalk of your attention and that you're waiting for a signal on whether to pause, proceed, or pivot in a new direction. You're waiting, in other words, for an answer to the obvious question. <laughs> Is this book for me? That's the question any honest and respectful author must directly address. The Sales MBA is written for you if you want to get better at influencing corporate buyers. You could be a sales professional who works with enterprise clients. You could be a startup founder who sells business-to-business products or services, or you could be a direct influencer who allocates money and people within your company. If you're an enterprise sales professional, I consider you to be the primary audience. However, if you find that selling your idea to corporate stakeholders is an increasingly vital part of what you do, as is the case for many people in today's economy, then this book will also help. And then I want to go on to uh, page 16 of the intro, where you write, despite or perhaps because of the lack of formal sales programs in post-secondary education, the market for sales training is immense. This explains the apparently endless supply of how-to materials on offer. Thousands of books, consultants, and online instructors claim they can, in fact, teach you how to sell. I've gone through many of these materials, and they've taught me a lot. But I've also noticed they lack something, especially when it comes to the challenge of engaging corporate buyers. So, Douglas Cole, what what is it that they're missing? 
Well, in essence, um, what I explain in the introduction is that there, there are three different ways of teaching somebody a, a better way to, 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 to do one's work. And you can talk about skill set, you can talk about tool set, and you can talk about mindset. And what I've observed with the vast majority of not only sales books, but most, most how-to books in general will focus on the skill set and the tool set. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about a particular methodology. They'll talk about perhaps some, some apps or technologies that might be helpful. That's the typical approach. And it is not, it is not useless by any means. I think if you're trying to educate someone and get someone to go from zero to 90, then those are the approaches that are probably the most pragmatic in terms of achieving that outcome. The thing that I notice as missing is that there is this mindset element, which is much harder to teach. It's a little bit more elusive, but it is such a central component of top performers. When you look at someone who graduates from a 90% performance you know, to the top of the heap in professional life and in athletic life or whatever their domain what you will always notice is that the people who are the very best, they have a distinctive mindset. There's a certain mentality that they bring to every practice, to every game, and that's what uh, allows them, that's what gives them staying power, that's what gives them drive, that's what gives them focus uh, in each of those engagements. And and so what I've tried to do in the case of sales is think about what are the components of that mindset and how do I tease out the the sub-elements uh, in, in, a, in a simple framework. And so that that's what the book tries to do. It, it it tries to it tries to teach this mindset element and it tries to lay out, you know, a almost like a, a standard curriculum that one can think of for especially enterprise sales. For some reason that general curriculum seems to be lacking. Right. And so can you talk briefly about the <laughs> the evolution of the salesperson in terms of how a lot of them start out? There's three steps and and ultimately where they are, I guess, which would be that last ninety to one hundred percent. Yeah, part. right. Well, I think there's a there is a predictable progression that I've seen time and time again in the sales profession. And generally, what happens is that when somebody begins in sales, there's a there's a conflict. There's an inner emotional conflict. The 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 newcomer in sales is acutely conscious of the fact that he or she is trying to get a very busy stranger to pay attention and to buy something which he or she may not actually need. And so the the newcomer in sales is very discomfited by this and tries to cover up that feeling by trying to be as likable and as charming as possible. That's uh, that's the likability phase which I think is the, you know, the common mindset for the the beginner in sales. And then as that person gets better at the craft and uh, he or she starts to think about win-win outcomes, mutually beneficial outcomes. You know, what's good for me? What's good for the client? How do I engineer an outcome that satisfies the two of us? And which is better, which is better yeah, than the first, which is better than the first. And, and and that's what I'm calling, you know, mutuality as phase two. And the highest phase, the, the one that's definitely a more rarefied space to be is what I'm calling objectivity. You know, just think of it as this plausible objectivity where even though the salesperson clearly has a quota, Clearly, they have a self-interested reason for getting to a sale. Nonetheless, that seller is perceived by the client as someone with a legitimate objectivity and perspective on the client situation and is therefore seen as a, a trusted advisor. And so I'm using this book to examine what are the foundations of such objectivity? What are the things that you need to be good at in order to be able to be seen as plausibly objective in a, in a buying situation? Right. And so the book has four sections, but it's primarily organized into these these three areas, which is um, becoming a strategist, becoming a change agent, and becoming a decision architect. And I want to kind of go in that order, if we, if we could, talk about a couple things from there. But talk to us about what led you to focus on those three areas. That's always fascinating to me that an author could have 97 areas, <laughs> but instead you picked those three. Well, I think that it is, first of all, just a, a natural inclination as a function of having come from consulting and being involved with teaching. I'm always looking for the the rule of three. You know, that's a, a commonly known teaching construct that's uh, most useful. Our, our brains tend to process, we tend to process conceptual triplets, you know, better than better than quintuplets and sextuplets or whatever. <laughs> right. So, uh, so I was thinking, you know, what, what is the the three part framework that is most uh, salient here? 
And um, but also it just seemed to fit naturally with what really do appear to me to be the 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 first principles of any kind of enterprise sales conversation. There's an external component to it. In other words, there are these external market dynamics that impact the discussion. There's a there's an organizational component to it in the sense of uh, you know all the the things that are happening within the client's company, and then there's an interpersonal component in the sense of what what is unique about this person's point of view in psychology and how do I understand that and how do I relate to it. So it just struck me that those three dimensions, external, organizational, and interpersonal, were the the primary overlapping filters that were relevant to any sales conversation. And then uh, I'm thinking that if I if I were to characterize in, in simple language, you know, someone who has mastered each of these realms, what is the what is the label that you might give to to that person? And so that's the reason I'm saying that it's you become a strategist by understanding the external variables, you become a change agent by mastering the organizational variables. And you become a decision architect by mastering these interpersonal variables. So that's the that's the thinking behind it. Yes. Well, let's jump into some of these. I want to quote from uh, again from the, um, the introduction, page twenty one, where you you write this book is framed as a sales MBA because, like a business school program, it's meant to build a common understanding of frameworks and approaches that help to address company challenges. But I'm also suggesting there's a mismatch between a traditional MBA curriculum and the practice of sales. Selling skills are not substantially improved with a better understanding of accounting, finance, or marketing. As someone who holds an MBA and has transitioned from consulting to sales, I can firmly attest to this. However, business acumen is indeed a powerful lever in sales, and it remains a growth area for many sales professionals. What do you mean by business acumen? Because that's a term that Almost everyone probably has an idea of what it means, but explain what you mean by it. Basically, how how businesses make money, you know how 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 they how they how they achieve a how they earn the the willingness of a customer to pay for what it is they have to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in, in simple terms, that's what a, a business has to solve for. In slightly more elevated terms, uh, it's you know understanding how this company. What this company needs to do in order to to win and, and prevail in the marketplace, and and so I think for that you you this is this is largely about the the strategy section. I think for that you need to understand the the essential components of of strategy. What does the term strategy actually mean? You know what what does a business strategy actually amount to? And you know how can I use those concepts to come across as someone who's a more credible advisor to my client? That's basically what I'm talking about with business acumen. Yes, and let me add to that. You write on page two, strategy has become a nebulous term. In hundreds of coaching conversations with salespeople, I've often posed the following question. What's the strategy of your most important client? The question usually triggers a confused expression or a halting attempt to stitch together a patchwork of observations. Rarely has anyone answered it crisply and with confidence. So you have several uh, pages on strategy. Explain what strategy is or, or what it's not. And uh, let's talk about the, the two questions that every salesperson should be able to answer about their prospects' uh, business strategy. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, strategy is one of these frustrating- <laughs> Like business acumen. <laughs> yeah. It's like one of these shibboleths of, 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 of the business, business life. And so- yeah, it's a very, very flexible term. People sort of read into it what they want. But but in essence, what I'm saying is that something is not really a strategy unless it incorporates some understanding of choices, trade-offs, and unique advantage. I mean, those th- those define, in essence, what a, a true business strategy is. Because any business could have sort of a general intent as to – a general intent with respect to what it wants to do in the market, you know, everything – Anything ranging from a, a, a vision or mission to, let's say, a financial objective, right? But uh, but that's not really strategy. A strategy is when you're you're very consciously deciding where to compete, where not to compete, mm-hmm. and 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 what is the basis of that decision. And that's what I mean by competitive advantage. So those are the, those are the essential components. They're the sort of yoke and albumen of the term strategy. And what I'm saying is that uh, there if you know you can strategy is a very deep concept there there's a lot written on it and i don't want to overly complicate i just want to give the reader the minimum effective dose to to be more effective 
as a strategist. And so what I'm trying to do here, as in other sections of the book, is, is reduce the complexity of this topic down to a couple of pointed questions, which can guide them in the, in the right direction. And for the sake of becoming a strategist, I'm saying that the two most important questions are, where do they compete and how, how do they win or how can I help them win? So the reason why I'm narrowing strategy down to those two questions is that they require you to come to an understanding of choices and trade-offs and unique advantage. You need to understand, in order to know where a company is competing, you do need to have some sense of who their target customer is, whether it's an individual buyer or a particular segment. Where are they competing? And where have they chosen not to compete by implication? And then what is the rationale for that? What, what is the unique advantage they're bringing to that particular segment uh, such that they believe they can, they can prevail and hopefully win against the competitors in that space. So those two questions, I think, force you to really narrow down your understanding of what a company's strategy is and, uh, and to become you know, more credible as someone who can have a strategic conversation with a client. Brilliant. Where do they compete and how will they win? So when you've asked that to a salesperson and they have the answers to those two, I suppose you're, you're pleased. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what I'm, I'm looking for with the question. <laughs> right. Yeah. But let's talk about the target customer. Another, uh, uh, I just want to quote one more time from, the, from uh, the book. You write, in answering the first of the two strategy questions, where do they compete? The easiest place to start is with the target customer. After all, the fundamental purpose of a business is, as management theorist Peter Drucker once said, to create a customer. Your client's target customer is the keystone variable. It defines the competitive parameters of their business, and it has enormous influence on their allocation of company resources. Your most basic responsibility, then, is to figure out who buys from your customer and why. Is that more rare uh, in your experience, that that salespeople have that understanding. Yeah, it is rare because it requires work. You know, um, the it requires extra effort. Typically, you know, I say this somewhere in the book that you know, typically when people think about sales, you know, one of the most common pieces of advice is that you have to empathize with your client, and that's certainly true. By no means would I dispute it. Uh, what I'm saying in the case of the strategy discussion is that it requires you to go one step further, not just to empathize with your client, but to empathize with the customer of your client. And and that's essentially what I think you need to do in order to understand strategy. It's, it's a bottom-up way of answering the question of where do they compete and how do they win? Because when you look at the world through the eyes of your client's target buyer, then uh, you are forced to answer these questions. Um, how does that buyer see your client? What is the particular, how, how does that person frame the product or service? What does that person compare the product or service to? Does it compare favorably or unfavorably? And in what respect? Uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And so it's a, it's a way of just, again, I'm trying in many of these instances to just to make the, the concept a very complex notion of strategy more workable and pragmatic for for the the sales profession and i think if you just go through that exercise of trying to put yourself in the the shoes of the buyer then it allows you to to break down something as complex as a strategy yes and one of my favorite lines from the book is where you write strategy is built around a clear understanding of the customer can you dig it can you dig it Sorry, it just, it just got me really excited. <laughs> TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. 
For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. In, in chapter three, you, you talk about value proposition, which is probably a helpful reminder of, for folks of what it actually is. You write that uh, to understand your client's value proposition is the most rigorous way to delineate where they compete and how they can win. Back to those two questions. Can you remind listeners what a value proposition is and then uh, maybe talk a little bit about the framework that you, that you outline uh, in the book? There's only six parts to it. But t- talk about what, what a value proposition is, because like strategy or business acumen, it's probably not always fully understood. Sure. Yeah. No, I think the uh, – basically, you, you, you are trying to tease out the components of uh, a reason for buying and the, the, why the, the buyer you know, chooses to, to purchase from your, your, clients, uh, your client as a, for a product or a service. And uh, what I the the launch pad for that particular discussion is uh, is some of the work that I've done with startups, and and the reason for that is that a startup has this do or die urgency to to really really go deep on this question of who is my target buyer, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and without knowing that it, it's really really hard for a, for a, a startup to to gain traction and to build momentum in the market, and uh, and so it it's it's something that. Also has application to to larger corporations. I mean, com- companies as they grow and become more mature, they still need to be rooted ultimately in who their target buyer is. And so I I go through this framework, which is uh, an iteration on a framework from uh, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote uh, Crossing the Chasm, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, a bible of the startup space. Yeah. And um, and I just walk through you know, what what are the components of of a, of a value proposition. You need to understand what the problem you're solving is. You need to understand uh, what your solution to that problem is. You need to understand uh, how that solution is framed. What's the category that's used? You need to understand what it's compared to. Uh, and you need to understand um, some of the additional integrated secondary benefits of of your product or solution. So I just go through each of these components and I'm basically suggesting that I know, again, this is, it feels like extra work. It feels like it feels like a an absurd demand on a salesperson to, to sort of think about this from the perspective of the end buyer, but uh, I think that if you can answer these questions, if you if you if you do have a sense of what uh, of how you would flesh out that that customer value proposition, then you are in a position to to advise a, a company and to say, well, my sense when I think about the headspace of someone who's considering your service or product. My sense is that we can be helpful with respect to your relative positioning in A, B, and for A, B, and C reasons, whatever. It, it actually becomes a, a, a very practical and powerful way to to get attention and to ultimately get agreement. Absolutely. And let me just mention what these six are because if you're a marketer, you're a sales manager, you're a CEO, you're a salesperson, and you haven't worked through this, get started. Get started. Number one is the problem. What is your What does your client solve? Two, customer, who is your client's primary buyer? Three, positioning, how will that buyer frame your client's product or service? How that buyer frames it. Four is alternatives to what other product service will the target buyer compare your client's offering? Five is differentiation. What are your client's competitive advantages and disadvantages? And six, integrations. What are the indirect benefits for the target buyer of using your client's product or service. So you also have an entire chapter on how to determine how your prospective customers or existing customers measure success. Can you explain why that is so important and how to go about finding out what the real measures of success are within an organization, regardless of what they may be saying? Yeah. Well, in in the strategy section, I'm looking for different frameworks and different angles you can bring to your your analysis or research on on a, a an account uh, in order to tease out an answer to these questions of where do they compete and how do they win. And so, in addition to the customer value proposition, I I bring up this concept of OKRs or objectives and key results, which mm-hmm. is sort of a Google Google based framework uh, for uh, for thinking about um, what is the overarching goal of the organization, and then what are the the underlying metrics that will get them to that goal. And 
and what I what I'm suggesting is that um, here the reason why you should make this your mission to try to tease these out is that they too are an example of of a company making choices. Uh, you know, it, once you find out what these the overarching objectives and key results are for the business, that gives you an indication of the kinds of decisions that they've made with respect to where to compete and how to win. And so, in the book, I use an example of a, of a corporation which was kind of hard to research because they were part of a triopoly. You know, there were three main contenders in the space. They were just one of three t- telecom giants. You know, there wasn't a real, there wasn't a meaningful difference between what they did and what one of their competitors did. You know, a fair, fairly mature. Yeah, that's right. Very mature. Industry. Have, not, not a charismatic founder, you know, articulating some sort of colorful uh, vision for the future, but nothing like that. It was just a uh, very, very staid. And, mm-hmm. and so it, what was helpful in that case was to try to figure out what are the one or two metrics that they, that, that are getting a lot of attention, disproportionate attention from the, the senior ranks. And, and through talking with the teams, we realized that uh, proposal volume was, um, was really, really important to them. And the reason why it was really important was that because they were working within an industry structure that only had three companies, roughly speaking, that um, they basically had something like a 50% chance of winning uh, for any proposal that they submitted to a, to a potential customer. And so that industry structure drove uh, a, a very specific metric, which, you know, if we could influence, we realized that we could get the executive team's attention. And so that became the real focus of, of our team's work is, is to try to think, well, how can we increase proposal volume? Because, you know, a, a, a one point intri- increase has, you know, a 50% payoff potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's what, um, so, so that's the reason for focusing on the, these metrics or objectives and key results uh, as a way to, to tease out the strategy. Yes. And, you have to do a little bit of digging to find out that that they would might not have told you that initially, but you had to get in there and figure out what really mattered to them. Mm-hmm. That's right. So there there could be a lot of smoke screens a salesperson could be hearing about what's important, but you got to go a little further. It seemed to me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a salesperson is not unlike a, an investigative journalist a lot of the time. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. you, know you, uh, you really have to keep asking the five whys and you have to keep trying to go beyond what uh, what people tell you and try to triangulate what someone tells you with what someone else says you know you you can never just take one input as gospel yeah oh that's what they said no (laughs) yeah Yeah, watch their feet so let's go to the second section about uh becoming a change agent and so a while back episode 269 was with uh jonah berger author of uh the catalyst and uh, which you mentioned in the book and he makes the point that in that book, that changing humans is more like uh, chemistry than than physics. Right. Walk us through that concept of becoming a change agent, having to do with not forcing change, mm-hmm. but removing barriers and allowing change to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. In- I did enjoy his book, The Catalyst, and it definitely was an important influence on this section. Uh, the uh, yeah, the essence of it is that uh, human beings are uh, most distinct from inanimate objects in the sense that when you try to push a human, uh, you get, uh, you run up against something called reactants. Yes. You get, you get a, you get a natural pushback. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so his core thesis said the guy with two teenage daughters. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I, kids too. So yeah, I know I'm not yeah. gonna tell you what's ahead, but yeah. <laughs> that's, right. That's, that's right. Yeah. So, so instead of focusing on, uh, on, um, confrontation that way uh one one needs to focus on removing the friction and 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 change is very much about trying to find the pre-existing energy sources and introducing a catalyst in order to bring about you know a catalytic reaction right Mm -hmm. so uh so that's that's the reason for the the chemistry analogy and uh, in and in just simple terms you know to, to go again back to the two questions, you know, just as when we were talking about strategy, we, we reduced it to those two questions in the last section. In this section, I'm saying that the, the two most important questions are, where is the energy for change in this organization and how can I feed that energy? Right. So that goes back to this, uh, this notion of just wanting to remove barriers and the sources of friction. And right, you uh, talk about a surfer and right, their relationship right. with a wave. 
harnessing the pre-existing energy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, I still have a lot of conversations with uh, with salespeople who sort of talk about the fact that the customer thinks this one way and they need to change that way of thinking, you know, that, that which to me, again, sounds more like physics. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think the the question you always, if possible, it's not always possible, but, but usually there is some there is some initiative that's getting a lot of attention. It's, uh, it's, it has really, it's getting hammered home in every single frontline manager meeting and at every company, all hands meeting, et cetera. And, and those are the issues you want to tease out. Those are the issues that you want to attach yourself to in, in terms of finding that pre-existing energy source. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's basically what I'm talking about in this section. Right. And I've also got to say that there's a section on, I think it was that same chapter, page 53, where from, I think it was from your Alt-MBA program with Seth Godin, right. where you wrote two or three pages about what the perspective is of a customer as it relates to change. I don't, we can't go through all that, but can you explain what that is? Because that part was a real eye-opener. Yeah, well, it was for me too, which is why I was determined to put it into the the text. And the the reason was that in that course, we were challenged by our instructor. We were challenged to not just to think about objection handling. You know, this is the typical angle. If you're going through a sales course or something, they'll they'll say, okay, what might they say in order to object to us, and then how do we overcome that? So it wasn't right. it wasn't about that. It was it was rather it was it was this radical empathy where they were saying, okay, if you if you were to put yourself in the customer's shoes and not just imagine their perspective, but imagine that it's the right perspective. Imagine that it's actually the the heroic perspective on the situation, and that you are in you are on the low ground, not the high ground. And and what what would it sound like in that case? And it was a really interesting. Uh, imaginative exercise to go through. Uh, and so that's the reason why I felt compelled to include it because when I sort of walked through that logic of the customer as hero, I started to see all the different ways in which uh, I or my sales team you know, might quite legitimately per- be perceived as just basically tone deaf to the customer's reality. Right, like uh, saying, uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> right. <laughs> which a lot of salespeople are probably... Uh, unconsciously saying, uh, or and what the prospect is, is thinking they're asking them to do, you know, rip it out and put in a new whatever it is. Yep, exactly. So chapter seven is titled, Why Do We Change? Well, we don't want to, but can you talk to us about the role that personal interests and social influences and structural surroundings play in, in making change happen? Because change does happen, but it's not always for the reasons we think it is. Yeah. Well, I did a lot of exploration and trying to find different articles on change. Of course, as you can imagine, there's a ton that has been written on the topic. And there, the best framework that I can find, you know, the best construct for thinking about change is one that uh, goes back to this metaphor, which I think it was initially, initially came from Jonathan Haidt in his happiness hypothesis. And he talks about this image of the rider and the elephant as a way of illustrating three things that are necessary for any kind of significant change, whether you're talking about people or organizations. And he said that there is a, a personal, a social, and a structural component to the process of change. And the rider and the elephant illustrates this these these three points because the rider the rider, the, the person on top of the elephant is a symbol of the personal reasons. You know that individual has to give very very precise and prescriptive directions to the elephant to get it to move in a certain direction. Uh, the elephant uh, symbolizes the the social the immensity of the social influences or these un- non-rational influences that could easily overwhelm you know the personal rational direction that the rider is providing, um, but have to be harnessed in some way. Uh, and then the path represents the the structural environment, the surroundings that determine the the, the direction in which the elephant can move. Right. So you have the you have the rider, the elephant, and the path. The, these are symbolic of the personal, the social, and the structural, and and so what I talk about in the book is how if you if you want to get rigorous about change, if you want to think about you know a simple framework to to almost function as sort of a a checklist to to work through systematically, I'm arguing that these are the most critical components. If you think about the reason why someone stops smoking, or whether you, or the reason why an organization does a very sudden about face, you can always tied back to these three things, I would say. 
You're a martial arts guy. Is there one particular form of martial arts that tries to take advantage of the energy of the opponent? Or is that is that all of them? Is that like judo or jujitsu? <laughs> yeah, so many of them do that. Yeah, uh, that yeah, came to mind uh, when I was reading. And I just wanted to quote from... Um, you know, uh, chapter eight. This was this was great. Just to reinforce that you don't want to um, you want to catch the wave. You write the primary responsibility of a change agent is to understand and articulate the dominant motivation of the people you are hoping to change. Typically, these people are the end users of your product or service. You should be looking to harness the energy behind their pre-existing commitments in much the same way a surfer uses the energy of a wave. In redirecting that energy, you essentially have two options. One, you can offer a new insight that prompts people to behave differently. Or two, you can provide new information to support a decision they have already made. By far, the most efficient path is the second. And it was another well written line where you say the mindset of a change agent is to seek out and select the birds that influence the overall flight pattern. Mm-hmm. Man, how is selling to large organizations analogous to guerrilla warfare? Hmm. Well, I think that it is analogous in the sense that the the seller or the sales team is a little bit like a a, a, a band of, of guerrilla of guerrilla combatants in the sense that uh, they want to make themselves felt omnipresent, even though numerically they are just sort of a trivial force. And that is um, that is something that requires, I think, a good understanding of these these three dimensions, because you you need to find leverage somehow as a as a seller, as a selling team. And and so I talk about how if you I talk about some practical examples, in fact, of people who have done this very well. You know, there was a there was one of my former colleagues who sold an extremely large program to a very large company. She took it from having a a very small ring fence program to one that was enterprise wide, and she did it by embracing this sort of gorilla gorilla mentality because she found that there was this one overarching theme that was getting talked about in all sorts of meetings across the company. So that shows, in other words, she found that personal interest. She mm-hmm. found a way to tie what she was trying to do with her f- program to that specific priority. Um, she then, you know, you go back to that bird analogy of finding the the birds who are influencing the overall flight pattern. She found some very influential people within the organization who were sort of known as innovators and highly respected innovators. And she, she, she was able to get time with them and position this program as a way for them to reinforce that brand. So she gave them a, a personal reason for wanting to get behind this, but she also gave, but in, in, in getting them on board, she also, she got tremendous leverage because they were highly influential. Uh, and then third, she, in terms of the structural component, she thought about, well, where is it that people are just spending most of their time, you know, digitally and physically, you know, which, which system gets visited the most, whether it's a CRM or a training environment? Um, what are the meetings that people attend on a regular basis? You know, uh, what, what are the meetings that have the, the most impact on what they choose to do? The, and she, she found a way to build you know, some kind of surrogate presence within within these different environments, digital and physical, and 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 it was the combination of those three things. You know, tapping into personal interests, engaging social influencers, and then embedding herself in the structural environment. That was why she managed to to be so successful here. That was how she managed to convert a very small program into a very large program. Yes. And when we say social influences, I think it, we should make it clear. We're not talking about social media influencers. <laughs> it's more like a, what is influencing yes. folks internally? Yeah. Good correction. Exactly. Yep. Let's go to the third section on becoming a decision architect. And Let's talk about Douglas Cole. Tell us the story of your European vacation where you ordered at a smoothie shop the dieters special and, <laughs> and what that has to do with decision architecture. Well, yes, I remember it well. I had come back from a vacation in Greece and I was all, you know, sun-kissed and relaxed and but also feeling a little bit unhealthy because, you know, been eating and doing very little active <laughs> for quite some time. And so I came back and we were in Athens. We were having breakfast uh, as a family at this cafe. 
and I had this smoothie menu and it looked very enticing at all these really fancy smoothie concoctions. And they had these ridiculous titles, you know, like a dieter special and a, you know, a lover's concoction and, you know, all these different absurd promises. Yeah. I mean, who would fall for that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, we we had anti-aging elixir. Yeah. I just remember laughing with with my family saying, I mean, this is just ridiculous. I mean, look how overpriced these stupid things are. Does anyone actually think that these do what they're supposed to do? I mean, it's just a complete marketing hoax. And anyway, so we, we chuckled about it. And then the, the waiter came over to the table and you know, I just never forget this moment where as I made my order, I, I couldn't stop myself from ordering the dieter special because I just wanted to feel slightly more healthy after two weeks of sloth. <laughs> and, right. uh, and I just remember, and I always think back on that moment because I realized that you can be as rational as you want. You can look at all these things like the ridiculous promises that are made on a smoothie menu. Um, but when it comes down to the brass tacks in human decision-making, we will very often default to these overpowering irrational impulses because we want to feel a certain way. Uh, it all sort of ties into our self-concept. And and so I, I use that story to introduce the decision architect section because I just want to remind people, and I'm not the first person to say this, but um, I do try to elaborate on it in, in a in a in a fairly rigorous way, is that we don't make decisions based on rational criteria. We, we're, not, we're not rational. We, we rationalize a pre-existing emotional state. And, and so the purpose of that decision architect section is to, is to, is to elaborate on that and provide some practical tactics and principles that people can use. So decision architecture, back to the vocabulary words, what, what is decision architecture? Well, essentially designing the, the variables that, that impact the the way people decide. And uh, it, because, as I said, the, the, these decisions are very often the, the natural consequence of just a, a, of, of these variables rather than through the, the rational intent of the person who's making the decision. And, and so what I, what I do in this, in this section is, is I, um, it's also a term that comes from behavioral economics, which is mm-hmm. sort of the overarching intellectual influence of this section. Uh, it struck me that when I was reading behavioral economics literature, they, they have uh, a framework. The, the whole field of behavioral economics is based on this three-part framework, which is human decisions are, are constrained, they're limited by these, these bounds of attention, bounds of rationality, and bounds of self-interest. And it's, it, it occurred to me that that's exactly the case with selling as well. Ultimately, if you think about what someone has to do for a sale, the first thing you have to do is get a buyer's attention. So you're working within bounds of attention. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing you need to do is you need to get a buyer to make a certain judgment about the information you're providing. Well, and that's words, the bounds of rationality, which aren't necessarily that rational. Exactly. Yeah. So you're working within these bands of rationality. And then the third thing is that you want them to, to do something. You want them to take action in some way. And in order to achieve that, you, you, you need to be working within bounds of self-interest. So the, you know, that same three-part construct from behavioral economics, I find to be immediately relevant to sales. And so that provides the, the basis for the discussion in that section. Yes, and it seems like that those are a real blind spot because people think that <laughs> they're paying attention to your marketing or sales. Uh, they th- you think that you you think that they're going to make a rational decision, and uh, they're going to do what's best for the company when actually <laughs> their their self interest is the big driver. It's just it's mm-hmm. interesting, and it seems like this it's things we forget about. And there was a line. Uh, it just seemed like values and priorities are more important than facts or reasoning. <laughs> it was a yes. great, a great reminder there. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about now. I know this is more about mindset, but let's talk about some ninja mind tricks here. Let's talk about how to speak to the subconscious, which is a great title of a of a chapter. And uh, just remind folks about some of the ways that we can do that. And also, um, Robert Cialdini's book. Influence uh, Psychology Persuasion is a really, really popular book uh, with with a lot of the listeners. So I loved how you you walked through his now seven principles, showing uh, over like a twenty four hour period. I think it was. Yeah, well, Cialdini's book, which I agree is canonical for anyone in sales or marketing, uh, Cialdini, the influence, the 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 science of of persuasion. Uh, he. Uh, He's basically a harbinger of behavioral economics. You know, his his mm-hmm. argument is 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 very much analogous to the arguments of the behavioral economics community in the sense that he says that when we when we're processing information, uh, 
the world is too complex. And so therefore we look for these cues. We look for these shorthand cues that allow us to come to, uh, to, to make judgments about things very quickly. There, there are efficient ways of processing our complex reality. And, and so Cialdini talks about these seven things, scarcity, reciprocity, social proof, commitment, likability, authority, and unity. And he says that, uh, you know, in, in so many instances, we're just looking for a way to quickly come to a, an assessment of the situation. So you walk, you decide you want to buy whatever it is, shaving oil on Amazon. And so you will immediately look to see what the reviews are because that social proof is just the quickest way to know whether something is, is, um, is worth paying attention to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you made an offhand reference to the start of our interview. You talked about, you know, the fact that we have the same first name. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, like, you know, this, there's something about that. It's it's totally non-rational, but there is something about that which makes me like you instantly more than if you didn't have the same first name as me. That's, you know, this concept of unity and likability. Likewise. Uh, you know, uh, so so there's, uh, and of course, as we've proceeded to talk, I now have legitimate reasons to like you beyond that. But uh, you know, <laughs> right off the bat, it started off well. I like where this is going, Douglas. <laughs> so anyway, the 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 point is that um, when you're talking about, in particular, the, the first of those three points, which is working within bounds of attention, you need to be really conscious of these of these influence levers and how they are, they, how they affect the subconscious. If you're designing, for example an outreach email, or um, if you are designing a proposal, I think it's always good to remind yourself of these. I, I always say, to, I always advise some sellers I work with that you should have a checklist where these things are just right there in front of you, um, such that every time you're sending out a communication, a very important communication to, let's say, an influential stakeholder, you just want to make sure that you've thought about how to layer in some of these these elements, because they are reinforcing you don't you don't just you find that communications and ad campaigns and persuasion campaigns are are more effective to the degree that they incorporate a number of these different influence levers Uh, and so that's that's what i talk about no book has been mentioned more in the books that have been on this show than robert cialdini's book influence the psychology of persuasion and if you are in marketing or sales you should read that book and it'll be a book that'll stick with you um it's Mm -hmm. it's one of the one of the very first books that you should read and actually his newer his his, he updated it last year it's like double the size and there were always six and he added this seventh one, which was unity. And that's where in the book he talks about how he likes certain musicians, like, uh, gosh, was it Justin Timberlake or something? And the reason why is because they, like he, are Green Bay Packers fans. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so it's like you talked about you were born in Cape Town and you noticed, uh, what was it, a rugby shirt? Or you were wearing a rugby shirt and somebody made this yeah. connection with you. Yeah, that's right. I, I remember I was I was disrupted one day before dinner by a knock at the door, and I went to go and open the door, and the the guy who was trying to do some sort of door to door sales job on me, he noticed that I was wearing a South African rugby shirt, and he mentioned that <laughs> that his mother was from South Africa, and it just you know it instantly. I mean, I had I, I reluctantly acknowledged that he was <laughs> he was pretty damn good at his job because yeah. while I wanted to get back to the dinner table, I, I couldn't deny that there was a certain sense of unity I felt with him uh, with that observation. So yeah, these things are powerful. You know, we we can talk about how immune we are to them, but they speak to you know deep aspects of our identity. They worked on Douglas Cole, author of the Sales MBA. That's right. <laughs> now he wasn't selling diet or smoothies, was he? No, no, no. He was uh, he was looking for charity donations. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, well, great. Just a quick reminder. Another one that's uh, a concept that is so so powerful, and it's actually been mentioned in two other books that have been on recently: uh, Evolutionary Ideas by Sam Tatum and From Impressed to Obsessed by John Picot, which is the peak end rule. Mm-hmm. And talk about how that is probably even more powerful for uh, the, the B2B sales process, uh, particularly long, drawn-out sales mm-hmm. processes. Yeah. The reason I talk about that is that when you think about a an enterprise sales cycle in particular, which tends to be a, a longer sales cycle, uh, what you're talking about is essentially a, a series of conversations. And uh, when you are watching a sales cycle that's going well, or when you're part of one that's going well, what you're doing essentially is that you're building momentum over the course of those conversations. And so uh, 
it, it, what it means in practical terms is that when you are preparing for an engagement with the client, you know, for every meeting, you want to be thinking about how you are contributing to that ongoing momentum. You want to be thinking about how you can maximize the memorability of that encounter and positive memorability of that encounter so that you can continue to build emotional, uh, the emotional force of, of your sales, so to speak. So the, um, the peak end rule is uh, is basically saying that you know, our memories are a kind of simplification of what's happened in the past. You know, again, it's this recurring theme throughout the book and throughout behavioral economics. Reality is too complex, and we're <laughs> right. always looking. We're always looking for ways. Our brains are always looking for ways to compress it. You know, yes. to, to 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 efficiently compress it, and and that works with memories as well. And what the peak end rule says is that we remember. Uh, an experience because of the peak emotion of that experience and because of the way the experience ended. Those are the two most important dimensions of, of any experience. And so when you're a sales professional and you're designing a meeting, it's actually, it's actually quite important to think about, well, how does my agenda maximize the memorability of this meeting? How do I ensure that there is some kind of emotional peak? And how do I then ensure that it ends in a way that, that is, most positive, right? And so in the book, I talked about, I just, as one example, I remember there was a great meeting I was part of where I was watching a colleague of mine do this extraordinarily well. And he, he sort of set the team up. There was a bunch of executives and he, he asked them right off the bat, you know, what, uh, what, what, what was the, um, what was something that wasn't on their, on their uh, LinkedIn profiles. And they, they talked oh, yes. about, mm-hmm. they talked about, you know, personal interest in a way that allowed them to loosen up and develop more of a human connection. And so, you know, he, he really, and they remembered that. It, yeah. He opened them up. He made them yeah. much more uh, receptive. And then, and then he actually built on it and, and he sort of shared some stories from the field, which made, made them feel like heroes because some of the initiatives that they were all, they had ultimately been responsible for were going quite well. And he showed them quotes and pictures of people who were testifying to this. And so it created this emotional crescendo and peak in the meeting. And, and then he sort of ended it off with, you know, uh, with, with a, a sort of vision of where things could go. And so they, they, they sealed off this experience, you know, I think in the, in the most positive possible way. I thought it was a great example of someone just uh, making, he actually did, was, was doing this just because he's naturally talented, not because he studied the pecan rule, but he was doing exactly what one should do. And so uh, it, it was a good example. It was a prototype of you know, how to think about that rule and how to apply it to the design of, of client interactions. So on the LinkedIn profile of Douglas Cole, does it mention Hello Kitty? <laughs> no, it doesn't. For, for precisely the, the, the possibility that, that I can answer that question. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. So just had two other quick things, big concepts I wanted to ask you about. And one is you write that the contrast effect is a key part of a sales professional skill set. It should be seen as an important ally in the quest to replace confusion with clarity. <laughs> Explain what the contrast effect is. Fairly powerful. Yeah, it's so important. The concept is that we do not see things in absolute terms. Our brains process things in relative terms. It's really, really hard for us to to see anything clearly without reference to some point of comparison. If I tell you, Douglas, you know, you should really send your your kid to this school. It's a great school. You know, that's not enough information for you to get a sense of whether that would be a good decision. You, you need to know, well, compared to what? Compared mm-hmm. to what other school I might send my kid. And so it just, it plays out in so many different areas of our lives and in so, so many areas of our working lives. And, and it so, reminds me of the, the idea of wanting to get like three estimates for right. you know, maybe right. something you can have done to your house. Right. And um, it also relates to this this theme, which again I go back to in the book time and time again, which is just information overload. You know, everyone's dealing with information overload. So, and you need to be able to show information in such a way that you create an interesting contrast. You need to, you need to be able to show the difference between A and B such that it actually registers and, and is and someone sees it as worth paying attention to. And uh, so that that applies to whether or not you're talking about the end of a sale and you're showing, let's, let's say different investment options. And it applies at the very beginning of the sale when you are talking about, you know, why your product or service or what, what about it is worth paying attention to this, this ability to contrast, I think is one of the most important foundational skills for, for, for sales professionals who have mastered the craft. Right. And not giving too many options. And of course, this is where you talk about pricing and, 
I think this may be the section, yeah, where you had the great uh, uh, story from Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational, where they they tested out the uh, Economist subscriptions. I've read about that before. Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. it works, it works. So yeah. the last thing I wanted to ask about specifically from the book was would explain what is meant by outcome-focused labels work better than processed focused labels. And this is big implications for the marketing and communications folks. Outcome-based labels versus process-focused labels. Yeah. Well, that's a concept that comes from the area of political polling groups. You know, people like George Lakoff, uh, for example, and and um, Frank Luntz, I think. Frank, Frank Luntz, in the, Ameri- yeah, in the United words, States. Words that work. Yeah, those, those two in particular have done a lot of work in, in this field. And what they've discovered time and time again is that there can be a, a marked difference in the way that a focus group responds to a political policy uh, idea, depending on, whether, depending on how it's framed. So, for example, if you, if you ask a bunch of right-leaning voters you know, how they feel about welfare, then they will be, they'll have a very negative response to that term. But if you ask them how they feel about uh, helping the poor, there's a very positive response mm-hmm. to that. And, and I'm, what I'm suggesting is that there's, a, there's often a, there's an analogy to this within a business context where m- many times we'll, we'll talk about something in, in, in a generic uh, or a, a, in a generic or a, a, a conceptual fashion. We'll say something like, you know, digital transformation and or operational efficiency you know we won't talk about the outcome we'll talk we'll, which might be something like uh, uh, increase in, increase uh, or shorten the deal cycle for example mm-hmm. uh, or lower cost whatever the case like the actual outcome we're trying to drive is the way we should be framing it rather than you know as a as a noun or as an abstraction so like finding uh, more customers or closing deals faster right exactly yeah okay. exactly uh, so um, yeah that, that's that's the that, that's what I'm talking about with the you know naming and norming section. Right. You talk about used car versus pre-owned vehicle, death tax versus estate tax, yep. gambling yep. versus gaming. <laughs> it's yeah. just brilliant, brilliant. So, Douglas Cole, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I think there's one quote that I remember from Stephen Covey, you know, the guy who wrote The Seven Habits, mm-hmm. uh, that I think is um, – highly influential or has been highly influential to me. And it's definitely one of the great influences of this book. And therefore I would say a takeaway. And he said at one, one point, he said that if you're looking to make incremental change, focus on the behavior. If you're looking to make a quantum change, focus on the, the paradigm, the mindset. Uh, and I think that that's the essence of what I'm trying to get across in this book is that um, I think the most significant changes that we can affect in, in our own lives and others is when we change the mindset or the paradigm of someone. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Yes. Yes. Well, is there one thing a listener could do today just to get them committed <laughs> to put in action one of the ideas from your book, perhaps one that we've talked about? Well, particularly in a sales context, I think, you know, pause is the, the simplest way to put it. And sales is naturally a very reactive game. You know, a client requests something, you want to respond in lightning speed, and you tend not to pause and ask, well, what if this, then what, and um, how 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 might that change my my immediate response here? You know, salespeople will sometimes be asked for a a let's say you know a proposal, a proposal, <laughs> right? And and they or literature, they, they they may not pause and consider these external organizational and interpersonal dimensions, which if they were understood would influence their response. Yeah. It brings to mind something a boss said to me years and years ago, we're dealing with clients and he said, always make a distinction or try to make a distinction between what a client wants and what they need. Yes. Because it's really fun. It makes you feel good to give exactly what they want. But if you're not asking why, um, I just don't know that you're going to get much further with them. Kind of like that example of the um, colleague you had who figured out, she figured out what was actually important inside that organization. So yeah. they might have been asking for something else, but she started to figure out what they actually need. Yeah, exactly. Well, looking back, uh, what books have most inspired your working career? I know we've mentioned a few already. Uh, working career, I would say probably the biggest inspiration has been probably two books. Um, well, one would be 
The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Mm-hmm. The second would be Deep Work by Cal Newport. Oh. I think that the concept of deep work, I think, I think it's just an, I think it's an increasingly important concept. Actually, you know, the, I think those who have a competitive advantage in the modern knowledge economy are those who can manage distractions the best. Oh. And and I think and I think deep work is 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 essentially about that. And so that's that's been a huge influence on me. Yes. Well, and I should also mention that. At the end of your book, you have the sales MBA reading list, mm-hmm. which, of course, when I first got the book and looked at the table of contents, that was the first place I went. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got 33 books. Not that I was counting, but uh, it's a it, great, great list of, of books. Uh, and it kind of gave me a sense of, wow, if those are the books that this author recommends, this is going to be good. <laughs> and, it, and it was. So, well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that uh, looking forward to reading? Yeah, well, you know, because I, I read so little fiction that uh, when I do choose to read fiction, it's usually because there have been multiple filters that have uh, been passed through in order for the, the recommendation to land. And I, everyone, a number of my friends have been telling me about uh, Amor Towles, uh, Gentleman in Moscow, and his, uh, his latest book. And so I, I don't. I think it's good to go back to fiction because uh, it's just a, good, a different way to exercise the brain. And I think particularly if you're interested in just good, good English prose, uh, fiction is you know, definitely generally more elevated than than the nonfiction. And so that's something I'm looking forward to as a as a break from the usual. Yes, a gentleman in Moscow, Amor Tals. You yeah. know what? Another author has mentioned that one, so I may have to read that. And folks. Don't be like me. Don't just read these nonfiction books. I, I actually read other stuff. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. uh, Willy Wonka in that book, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The boy's on the tour, and he sees he, he finds out that they don't just eat chocolate and candy in the factory. They eat actually a balanced diet. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, yeah. at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books you've mentioned and your LinkedIn profile and your your Twitter account. And now to the listener, please do me a big favor. Reach out to Douglas, not this Douglas, Douglas the guest, and congratulate him on this excellent book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or, or any way that you can, because guests who've been on the show every week talk about how much they enjoy hearing from uh, marketing book podcast listeners. And not just because marketing book podcast listeners are ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Spotify or Apple podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is the sales MBA, how to influence corporate buyers. The author is Douglas Cole, Douglas, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much, sir. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.